0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Bonte. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? All right.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available in both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Bhikkhu Bodhi, very well-known Buddhist monk and also scholar of Buddhism. Uh, In particular, you have uh, translated, I guess... The greater part, the great bulk of what's called the Pali Canon into English from Pali. The Pali Canon is, by many people's reckoning, the earliest stratum of written Buddhist texts, I guess. And is it fair to say that you've translated the the majority of that into English? No,
0: not by a long shot. Really? Yeah. What I've translated myself really is the... Sangyutta Nikaya, that's the connected discourses, and and the Ankutara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. The Majjhima Nikaya was originally translated by the British monk, uh, Bhikkhunanamoli, and he left, he died suddenly without having had the chance to polish his translation or to have it prepared for publication. And it was just left as handwritten manuscripts in his Cottage at Island Hermitage, so I prepared that for publication, and I did a fair amount of editing on it, and then I wrote the introduction, the notes, the glossary, and so forth.
1: Okay, but but even if we confine ourselves to those first two volumes you mentioned, they're like they're like a thousand pages each or something, right? They're, yeah, that, that's
0: right, you yeah, yeah. And that's I massive. also I also did the nipata and its commentary which also comes to about let me just take a quick look
1: <laughs> these are very big books i have a couple of them on my bookshelf if i were home i would i would show them
0: yeah if, if we count the notes and all the supplementary material it's about 1500 pages
1: well there you go i mean <laughs> yeah. so that's not that's not most of the polycanon
0: no 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 there's still well, First, this is just part of the Sutta Bhitaka, Then there's the Vinaya Bhitaka which I haven't touched, and the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, which I haven't translated the canonical Abhidhamma. But I did prepare a book on the Abhidhamma called. I gave it the title "A Comprehensive okay, Manual." Okay, so you're counting Abhidhamma. the Abhidhamma. Yeah, that part of the Abhidhamma.
1: Okay, because that's that's a well anyway. That's a somewhat some people would date that as later than than oh, the yeah. other.
0: Uh, right. Definitely, that's from yeah. the medieval period.
1: Yeah, that's about human psychology. And then the other one you mentioned, one of the ones you haven't done is largely about kind of ritual and stuff, monastic ritual, right?
0: Or monastic uh, the rules and regulations. Yeah. That's the Vinayabitaka, but somebody kind of else... the
1: Leviticus of Buddhism or, or something, if I've got that right. So um, the... Uh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's... um. Uh, but let's talk about a thin volume of yours, what, th- th- because it's more relevant to what we're going to talk about. Um, yeah. I mean, all of what we've, we've mentioned is, has some relevance. But, okay, so this is called The Buddhist Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony, an Anthology yeah. of Discourses from the Pali Canon, edited and introduced by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Yeah. Here's what it looks like, relatively slender volume. Um, as the title suggests, it has some relevance to ethics, uh, ethical yeah. behavior, um Also has relevance to you know some some things that get a lot of discussion these days like the so-called you know political polarization in America and the, mm-hmm. the psych, so-called psychology of tribalism. So there's a lot of things we can discuss that are relevant to this, but in a very broad sense, it has relevance to to Buddhist ethics. And I yeah. and I and I want to talk today about Buddhist ethics in addition to some of these kinds of concrete application. Yeah. And yeah. of course, Buddhist ethics sounds academic but as i've already suggested it has practical application um Mm. and also it may be of interest you know there are a lot of people who are now calling themselves buddhists who who didn't grow up buddhists they may have you know been introduced to buddhism via meditation retreats or something Mm. and they might they might want to know more about what kinds of ethical commitments are entailed in in calling yourself a buddhist in addition, there is uh what's called socially engaged Buddhism, and I know you've been very involved in that, that is to say, mm-hmm. you know political activism uh and um and and that in turn is is uh, has a connection to Buddhist ethics. so mm-hmm. there's all of these practical applications, and we'll try to get to a lot of them, but why don't we start out talking um about Buddhist ethics in a more kind of i don't know broad gauged sense? Mm-hmm. And ask you, you know, what is the, uh, well, first of all, is it meaningful to talk about a Buddhist ethics, right? I mean, I've always wondered, when you hear that there's a course on Christian ethics, I always wonder, like, wow, that could go a lot of places. There's been a lot of things that have been justified by Christian theologians as ethical. If if you ask them, well, what what is the core, what is the foundation for Christian ethics, you might get somewhat different. Answers I guess they would certainly mention things Jesus said maybe the sermon on the mount yeah, uh, yeah. but in the case of Buddhism what is the answer to that question in other words first of all to what extent can we speak of a buddhist ethics and secondly what is the foundation for it in the text
0: okay certainly there is such a thing as buddhist ethics in fact like i would say that ethics is fundamental to the to the practice of the buddha's teachings so we find various formulations of the basic Buddhist ethical principles. For example, the most basic fundamental code of ethical principles that the Buddha lays down for the lay disciples are what are called the five training rules, the pancha sikapadani, or also the pancha sila. So this is one undertakes the determination to abstain from, or what undertakes the training rule, to abstain from destroying life from taking what is not given from engaging in sexual misconduct from false speech and then from sexual uh, from uh, the use of intoxicants so those are five basic ethical principles and then there are various like larger more expanded version of of the ethical code and in the even in the noble eightfold path one finds three principles which cover the domain of ethics, three of the factors of the Eightfold Path, right speech, which has four subdivisions, right action, which has three subdivisions, and then right livelihood.
1: Okay. So so just to make sure I, I understand this clearly, the, the, the first set of what well, kind of prohibitions, I guess, on intoxicants yeah. and so on, these are things that monks... Might adhere to, but lay Buddhists uh, might not be required to adhere to all of them.
0: No, the five precepts are the precepts that are laid down for the lay community. The, the monks have a larger code of, let's say, ethical principles, or let's say, training rules. Mm-hmm. So many of many of them are ethical, but a lot of the training rules are more concerned with what we might call monastic eti- etiquette and principles that will promote communal harmony within the monastic sangha.
1: Okay, but does that mean, was one of those sexual abstinence or did I misunderstand?
0: No, no. Not sexual abstinence. Good. Sexual abstinence is a training rule for the monastics. For
1: the monastics, okay. Yeah,
0: but for the lay community, of course, if the Buddha (laughs) made sexual abstinence a requirement for the lay disciple, there would be no later generation of Buddhists. Well, I was going to
1: say, you know, the shakers, the shakers did try that and there are not many shakers. They they, had to, they they had to recruit on a massive scale to even keep their head above water and in the end it didn't work.
0: Yeah, no. the um, the, th- the third precept of the lay community t- is to abstain from sexual misconduct. Misconduct, so
1: And what about intoxicants? Can a lay, is a can a, a lay Buddhist drink alcohol?
0: Yeah. First, one has to say about the training rules that they're not like commandments or fixed prohibitions, but they're training rules that a, a lay person takes upon himself or herself. As a kind of determination to train in these principles. Mm -hmm. And so one can't say that it's prohibited for a lay person to drink alcohol. But if the lay person undertakes the training rule, the five precepts or five training rules, then as a matter of personal training, then they won't drink in drink alcohol. Okay. Now I should say that my opinion, the precept to abstain from the use of intoxicants, has a somewhat different character from the other four precepts. What I would say is that the other four precepts are directly and explicitly moral principles, or they're determined by moral principles. Whereas the the fifth precept doesn't intrinsically have a moral character, because there's nothing immoral or unethical about using intoxicants. But I think the Buddha included this training rule amongst the five precepts, because when one uses, especially habitually and beyond the limits, when one uses alcohol, it clouds the mind and it debilitates the sense of what we call moral restraint. So one then finds it easier to transgress the other four precepts, which are Mm -hmm. explicitly and intrinsically ethical in character
1: hmm okay, so you mentioned um the eightfold path, yeah, and uh that's certainly at the at this close to the center of i guess ethical reckoning and as you said um there are three so the Eightfold path is a list of these eight things and and they all begin as commonly translated with the word right yeah, so there's right view right yeah. intention. Yeah. right concentration, right mindfulness. And as you said, three of these are very much kind of behavioral right. in their orientation, right yeah. speech, yeah. right action, yeah. right livelihood. That is how, how you make a living. Um, I, I want to just nod to something before, uh, that we can, I hope, get into later. But there's an, an interesting characteristic of, um, of of Buddhist ethics and really of uh, Buddhist uh, thought more broadly which is kind of a connection between um, uh, viewing the world clearly and behaving properly in an ethical sense. In the introduction to this book uh, that that I mentioned, Social and Communal Harmony, you note that there's a distinction. If you look at just right view in the the Eightfold Path, that is the proper and clear view of reality, there's something called mundane right view.
0: Yeah. Which yeah. is
1: which has to do with ethics, among other things, and then yeah. there's world transcending right view, yeah. which has to do with, I guess, well, if you attained attained enlightenment, you would have completely world transcending yeah. right view. But there is this connection, right, between on the one hand, yeah. just, just viewing the world clearly in, the, in 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 a way that could lead to transcendence,
0: yeah.
1: and proper ethical conduct because if you see the world clearly it yeah. will be natural to behave properly is that fair to say i would
0: say so yes yeah
1: and that's kind of unusual right i i mean in the i i'm not i guess there's a sense in which you see it in christianity and in and, and islam it's just that maybe it's not so much a metaphysically proper view of the world that that you see what i mean
0: in Buddhism or in the... Other? It's,
1: it's, it seems less so in, in the Abrahamic religions.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, the way I explain, and based and base on the text, um, the meaning of the mundane right view, is explained as having an understanding and a trust in what is called the principle of karma and its fruits and its results. So it's an understanding that our morally significant actions are wholesome and unwholesome deeds, create karma, a kind of moral force, a moral and psychological force that has the capacity to produce results okay. that correspond to the ethical nature of the original action. And so this applies to the sequence of lives within samsara, the cycle of birth and death, and it affirms the capacity of our actions to generate results, not only in this life, but to bring about, actually to generate the next type of existence that we take on, and to bring their results in future existences. And so when one has trust and confidence in this principle, through understanding, those in most cases not through direct realization. So when one has an understanding of this principle, that will serve as a deterrent from engaging in unwholesome actions and as a motivation for engaging in wholesome actions. So in that way, the right understanding, the right view of karma and its fruits then becomes a kind of a guideline to undertaking ethical modes of behavior.
1: Okay, now I see more clearly. So, really, mm-hmm. um, both world transcending right view and mundane right view can lead to ethical behaviors in, a, in almost in a different through different paths.
0: Yeah, and then we could say that within the Buddha teaches a kind of three tiered process of training, where we have here at the foundation we have ethical behavior, a good conduct. This is sila, and then based on that comes the training in meditation, leading to samadhi, to concentration. And then the training in concentration serves as the basis for the training in panya, in insight or wisdom. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this way, the observance of ethical behavior serves as a foundation for the two higher stages of training.
1: Okay. So in in um among Asian lay Buddhists, yeah. one motivation for behaving um ethically has a little something in common with the kind of an Abrahamic motivation. If you imagine Christians yeah. uh behave wanting to behave well so that they'll they'll uh go to heaven. I mean yeah. I don't yeah. want to put it too crassly, but um there there is the idea in Buddhism, that if you behave ethically, you're more likely to have a favorable rebirth.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh,
1: and then the other, the other path uh, is, 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 and there's a little bit of an irony here, right? Because um, it, 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 the the other, the world transcending right view has to do, involves among other things, apprehending experientially the idea of not self. Right. So there's a sense in which you don't, exist. Um, And yet, if you look at mundane right view, there's a sense in which you're you're kind of concerned for what's going to happen to you in the afterlife, right?
0: Yeah, though I don't see a contradiction between the two when you sort of have a clear understanding of what the teaching of non-self entails. I wouldn't say that it, it entails that you are not there or that you don't exist in any way. At, I would say, the empirical level, the person certainly exists, though they exist as a constellation or conglomeration or an assemblage of what we call the five aggregates, the five constituents of experience, Mm -hmm. bodily form, feeling, perception, volitional activities, and consciousness. And so what we call the person is this assemblage of the five aggregates. Mm -hmm. And this assemblage of the five aggregates, let us say, in any individual life, maintains a certain continuity from the moment of birth or even conception up to the moment of death. So even though I don't have a solid, substantial, enduring self, but there's a continuity, a consistency, a regularity to my experience so that... The actions that I do in the past will have consequences for me tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, even okay. further into the future. And in the and- same way, because there's this continuity of experience within one life, what happens at death is that the body ceases to function, ceases to provide a support for the stream of consciousness, but the stream of consciousness moves on to a new existence and the particular mode of existence that the consciousness takes on is what is governed by the karma Mm -hmm. created in this life
1: okay and um on the one hand you can uh kind of justify the idea of not self intellectually philosophically and you just did some of that at yeah. the same time, in, in Buddhism, there's there's a way of just apprehending its truth experientially through yeah. meditative yeah. discipline, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and um, and in general, that's an interesting thing about Buddhist philosophy is that this kind of two sided uh, nature of it. In the case of not self, um, I. I my sense is that one dimension of the not self experience that has uh, or a kind of not self experience that has uh, obvious relevance to ethics is um, the sense in which you are actually the bounds of the self are in a sense illusory or at a minimum more porous than they may seem. You know, in other words, Mm. the, 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 the bounds of the self that are, the conception of which is so involved in selfish behavior, right? The idea that yeah. I'm me yeah. and yeah. everything else is less important. Yeah. There there can be an experiential sense of the dissolution of the bounds. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And you, you have had that?
0: That experience?
1: Yeah. I'd
0: say not in a radical way. <laughs> that <laughs> implies sort of a breakthrough to the direct realization of non-self you know, at the level of a liberating insight. I can't say that I've had that. But what I would say is that, you know, through, especially when doing intensive meditation over an extended period of time, there comes, I would say, an insight into the way that what we think of as me, as I, when comes to see that what is taking place is really just a process of moments or occasions of the arising of consciousness or mental activity, sometimes governed by feelings, sometimes by thinking, sometimes by volition. And one just sees these different occasions of experience arise and then very immediately pass away. And so in that way, there comes, I would say, in an attenuation of the sense of self. Though mm-hmm. so the breakthrough to the realization of non-self comes with what might be thought of as the attainment of stream entry, like the first stage of enlightenment
1: and and you and you have not had stream entry
0: I don't claim that no
1: yeah, i don't either <laughs> <laughs> but but still, I think we're at least seeing here yeah. when you describe that a way you know when you a way that um the the what you call world transcending right view movement yeah. toward right view in a certain sense can naturally, you might say, lead to more ethical conduct. Because when you have that experience of a lessened separation from the rest of the world...
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And then what I would say also, that there are, within the sphere of Buddhist practice, the cultivation of certain meditative states that conduce to more ethical behavior. So it's not just a matter of Rigidly observing precepts. Also, also what I would say, you know, the way I explained the five precepts previously was in rather negative terms, as abstaining from this, abstaining from that. But corresponding to the negative formulation of the precepts, one also finds more positive uh, statements of more positive virtues that correspond to the abstinences. So, for example. One abstains from the destruction of life and one dwells kindly and com- kindly and considerate and compassionate for the welfare of all beings. One abstains from stealing and one lives honestly. One abstains from sexual misconduct and one remains faithful to one's own partner. One abstains from falsehood and one is committed to speaking the truth. Okay, so those are the positive moral virtues that correspond to the negative abstinences. Mm -hmm. But then there are certain other states that are cultivated, more fundamental states that are cultivated as meditations or as reflections. So these are sometimes called the four Brahma Viharas or the four immeasurable states of mind. So this would be boundless loving kindness, boundless compassion, boundless altruistic joy, and boundless equanimity or impartiality. And so through loving kindness, one develops the wish for the welfare and happiness of others, through compassion, the wish to remove the suffering of others, through altruistic joy, the rejoicing in the good fortune and good qualities of others, and through impartiality, the absence of favor, favoritism, of preferring some to others, and so the cultivation of those qualities, I would say, help to dissolve the boundaries between oneself and others, and and make one more responsive to the needs and you know, to the needs of others, and more willing and eager and determined to help to help them to promote their happiness and alleviate their suffering.
1: Okay. Now, you just made a lot of references to the impact of your behavior on others, yeah. other human beings, but also non human sentient yeah. beings. Is, um, is it fair to say that Buddhist ethics has a kind of um, a consequentialist tendency by which I mean, uh, you know, the bottom line tends to be what is the ultimate impact of your behavior you know as opposed to i mean in western philosophy there's a distinction between consequentialist uh, philosophies in particular utilitarianism on the one hand and then say for example virtue ethics where there are just these virtues and you abide by them without necessarily you know constantly kind of calculating the without such um, emphasis on on the consequences of the behavior. Does it make sense to think of Buddhism as a having a consequentialist and or utilitarian tendency?
0: If what I would say that Buddhist ethics doesn't qu- quite fit into either of those categories, but perhaps it tries to affect a synthesis of them. Of course, what I would say is that certainly the virtues. A quite play a quite essential role in Buddhist ethics. Rather than, let us say, if one takes a very strict consequentialist position, then one calculates what is it that's going to promote the good of others, and say, if I could promote the good of others through some kind of dishonest behavior, through spreading falsehood, then I should engage in that dishonest behavior because it will contribute to the good of others. Um, ge- as a general rule, I would say that Buddhist ethics would discourage abandoning the virtues that lie behind ethical behavior in order to follow a strictly quant- consequentialist approach to, to conduct. Okay. Okay. But I would say also, and this is my opinion where I've been attacked for this by some stricter adherence of virtue ethics in Buddhism, that there are certain circumstances where I would say considering the consequences consideration of the consequences can justify a departure from a strict adherence to a virtue ethics. And I, I give as the primary example of this the case where And we always have to go back to Nazi Germany, for for examples. Okay, the Nazis are rounding up the Jews. I see that my neighbor is harboring, hiding some Jews in his basement or attic. And the SS, the Gestapo, come around and ask me, have you seen that any of your neighbors is harboring Jews? Okay, in this case... I'm not going to adhere strictly to the principle of telling the truth at the risk of putting those Jews in the my neighbor's basement,
1: at risk of, of being rounded up and killed. Okay. the There's a kind of related—there's um, another question that's relevant to this kind of consequentialism question, which is, you know— in Western, well, certainly in Western jurisprudence, there's a lot of emphasis on moral culpability and 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 on retribution as a good yeah. in and of itself. So in the American legal system, even if you have somebody who committed a crime, even if it's not going to do any good to punish them, yeah. um, there, there's still a doctrine that justifies punishment on grounds of retribution and retribution alone. Now, my uh-huh. sense is that in Buddhist reckoning, there's a greater relative emphasis on the question of will this do any good, and how you know, in other words, what what's the best way to solve the problem? I, I mean, I, I, I think of it as a, as having a, a a pragmatic air that puts a, perhaps less emphasis on things like retribution mm. as moral goods. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> that makes sense. So I don't know whether any traditional Buddhist country has. <laughs> well, this is a has, has, has based its penal system or its system of yeah, uh, you know, its legal system on considering rehabilitation as a goal of the penal system. Well, deterrence than, is
1: another uh, it, consequence that that is separate from retribution. So there's, yeah. you know. Um, so you could imagine, you know, a, a system that emphasizes deterrence and rehabilitation, yeah, but not retribution. In any event, do, do you is it is it a fair characterization of Buddhist philosophy? What I what yeah. I just said
0: of I would say it's a fair characteristic characterization of Buddhist philosophy, but not necessarily of the way the legal systems in Buddhist countries operate.
1: Okay. okay. Um. So on this uh, issue of um the well-being of others as we said uh in buddhist thought that extends beyond human beings to all sentient beings it's a phrase you see in buddhist yeah text.
0: exactly yeah yeah
1: where does that um come from now buddhism of course is uh closely related to hinduism the 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 buddha uh, would have grown mm. up in a kind of i guess hindu moyu we would think um the uh and when you think of the prohibition on say in India killing cows or something that's that 's typically connected to belief in the idea of um, reincarnation, in other words, that could be a former human or something that 's at least the the, the, the western the, the version of it that makes it into the West right in the case of Buddhism, I never hear that rash, uh, uh, that kind of rationale. In other words, I've never I've never heard the res- the respect for the well-being of all sentient beings being connected to the doctrine of rebirth.
0: Um, I don't think I've come across that either. Yeah, first of all, maybe I I could correct a few things that you said. Okay. Um what we call Hinduism actually came into existence, I would say several centuries after the Buddha. What existed in the Buddha's time would have been, on the one hand, there would have been Brahmanism, which would have been the system observed by the Brahmins based on the Vedas and the later texts within the Vedic collection, collections. And then there would have been various local religions, religions, sort of village-level religions based on the worship of various local deities who are sought for protection, a wide variety of, of indigenous beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it took time, several centuries, for a full-fledged religion to emerge that would could be brought under the general name of Hinduism. And even then, there are various complexities within that system. Like I think for centuries, the Shaivas, the worshipers of Shiva,
1: mm-hmm.
0: had a quite hostile relationship to the Brahmins, who were the followers of the Vedas. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, there were the, those who worshipped Vishnu. So there were three basic spheres, Vaishnavism, Shaivism, and Brahmanism, which at some point coalesced perhaps even in the medieval period to give rise to what we now call Hinduism.
1: Yeah. I've even heard people say Hinduism didn't exist until Westerners gave it that label. But, but I, I think that, you know, that's going further than you'd want to go. But, but the, um yeah. but, but the, uh, the doctrine of reincarnation would yeah. have been around when the Buddha grew. Uh, up. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, right. it would have been
0: part of the cultural milieu in which the Buddha grew up. Um, but I haven't, I haven't come across rebirth or reincarnation used as a justification mm-hmm. for, say, the Buddhist principle of ahimsa, of non-harming others. Rather, what's given as the reason is the fact that all beings are averse to suffering and desire happiness. All beings are afraid of death and want to live. Mm-hmm. For example, we have Dhammapada, some verses, and the chapters of the
1: Dhammapada. It's a really striking feature of Buddhism, though, right? Yeah. I, and and I, I think quite impressive.
0: Uh, uh, what the, is The concern
1: like? for the well-being of all sentient beings.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, coming back to Brahmanism, even though I think the idea of the sacred cow also, I think, came into... Hinduism at a, late, a later time, subsequent to the time of the Buddha. Yes, because in the Buddha's time, the Brahmins were staunch proponents of sacrifice, of animal sacrifice, hmm. including the sacrifice of or killing, the sacrifice of cattle. Hmm. Um, if you look in the Sutta Nipata, it's the, I think it's called the Brahmana Dhamma Sutta one of the chapters in the Sutta Nipata.
1: For our, for our yeah, podcast listeners, I'll, say, I'll do a narration of you looking this up. You're looking this up.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah, in the Sutta Nipata, chapter two, Sutta number seven, I translated it as the tradition of the Brahmins. Hmm. And in the Sutta, the Buddha speaks about how in ancient times, the Brahmins were very pious, devout, dedicated to study and meditation, and they dwelt harmlessly. But then at a later time, they became corrupted and greedy for offerings from the kings. And so to get these offerings, they proposed to the kings the idea of sacrificing cattle. Okay. So that became then, that came to be a uh, a prevalent uh, practice amongst the Brahmins that the Buddha criticized very sternly.
1: So the emphasis on non harm to sentient beings goes way, way back in, in Buddhist texts.
0: Yeah. And also it's common to other religions that were contemporary with the buddha especially jainism
1: mm, well you know, right the, the, well they they were famous for taking this to what some might call extremes right they wore like nets so that they would not accidentally ingest tiny exactly, insects yeah.
0: exactly yeah
1: um so uh let's talk about how some of this uh well, well let's talk about how that in particular non-harm yeah. plays out in the real world Um uh, and maybe even connect it to uh, the three uh, parts of the eightfold path that, as you said, are, are related mm. to ethics in a kind of direct way. Right speech, mm. right action, right livelihood. Yeah. So I've heard some interpretations of right livelihood to mean that you should not, for example, have a job in the armaments industry. Yeah. I don't know whether that is actually explicit in the early texts, it's a recent interpretation, uh, or, or whether it's even a consensus interpretation now, but it, it does sound like it's related to this concept of not harm. Do you want to talk about your view on, on on that issue?
0: Yeah, there is a sutta in which, or a discourse, in which the Buddha speaks about five kinds of trade in which a disciple should not engage. I think you'll... You may be able to find it in that book on the Buddha's teachings on social and communal harmony. Okay. I don't have it in arm's reach right now. I think one of the means of livelihood is trade and weapons.
1: Mm-hmm. The.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Let me see. I should be able to find it.
1: And of course, this is... Uh,
0: in another book.
1: Another area where um, the actions of Buddhists do not always correspond with the ideals.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely.
1: uh, Which tends to be true in religions.
0: Okay. Okay, there are five trades that should not be taken up by a lay follower. And the first is trading in weapons Hmm. then trading in living beings. This could be taken as trading in animals for sale and also trading in slaves or prostitutes. Um, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons.
1: So, were the the early Buddhists were vegetarian?
0: Uh, this is an interesting point that the Buddha doesn't make vegetarianism obligatory. Um, but here he's sort of he's legislating for the monastic order. He doesn't give. Fixed rules in regard to the lay community, but he says for the monastics, because the monastics would go on alms round and would receive whatever is offered. So he says that it's permissible to eat meat, except there are few kinds of meat from certain animals are accepted. But generally, it's acceptable to eat meat on condition that one has not seen, heard, or has grounds for suspicion that the animal was killed specifically for oneself. But if a meat dish is prepared from an animal that's already dead, then it's permissible for the monastic to accept it.
1: Right. So I guess maybe that explains why I've heard about these Buddhists in, I don't know, um, Bhutan or somewhere, maybe this is not uncommon where they would have livestock and just kind of create a situation where it was likely that the livestock would have a fatal accident. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It was like it was like they raised them on the edge of a cliff, and there would, you know, I, I'm I, my wife read about this. I'm you serious. Know,
0: put the, put <laughs> put a guillotine <laughs> within the, the cow pen, and just yeah, and then you know, oops with, with just. Timed for the blade to drop at a particular time when the clock strikes three. <laughs> yeah,
1: or there's just trip, there's trip wires all over the place. Yeah, and then
0: if the animal happens out of curiosity to stick its neck within the guillotine and the blade drops, well, we're not responsible for the death of the animal.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I think there is something like this going on somewhere in some Buddhist country. I'll get I, I'll, I'll go ask my yeah. wife what the details are, but um, not not a guillotine, but I mean. Yeah. There was really something like I think it involved a cliff, but anyway, the um, uh, so
0: yeah, but I should say in Buddhist countries like in Sri Lanka, yeah, some of the Buddhists are vegetarian on moral unethical on principles, mm-hmm. but the great majority are not vegetarian. Um, and in Sri Lanka, I think most of the butchers are not Buddhist, but they're usually Muslims. Maybe mm. some are Christians. And then a lot of the Buddhists, probably the main kind of meat that they eat would be fish. And the fishing communities are primarily Christian, or they can be just ordinary Buddhists, they're not so strict in observing the precepts. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So on the on the issue of... Uh armaments and non-harm and so on, you would think that uh, this would give uh, Buddhist philosophy, at least, uh, you know, Buddhist kind of philosophical ethics, a very anti-militarist bent. Is that, um, I, again, leaving aside the way governments in Buddhist countries behave, yeah, I mean, yeah. I- you know, as usual, there can be a gap between religious yeah. ideals and behavior. But as far as the ethical teachings go, would you, would you say it's more excuse me, anti-militarism than other religions?
0: I would say that probably if one takes Buddhist principles through for, and tries to f- pursue them in a consistent way, it would certainly lead to an anti-militaristic type of policy. But say hey, in Buddhist countries, let us speak about earlier eras in traditional Buddhist countries where the country is ruled by a Buddhist king, the king has the responsibility for defending the country. And so what I would say is that as part of the king's, the government's responsibility is to maintain a defensive army to defend the country from attacks by aggressive nations. And even though an ideal follower of Buddhist ethics would not join the army and participate in military adventures, but the great say the ordinary Buddhist followers who are not strictly adhering to the precepts would could join the army and participate as soldiers. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to follow Buddha's principles in at least a compromise way, but trying to observe their spirit, the country would not engage in aggressive attacks on other countries, but just utilize the military forces to defend the country and to protect the people Mm -hmm. but strict observers would avoid joining the military those who want to observe the precepts in complete purity
1: Mm -hmm. and of course um a threshold an important phase in the spread of buddhism was its embrace by the emperor ashoka in india and uh, the standard story on him is he had had a phase of being militaristic himself, but then he saw the error of his ways and his embrace of Buddhism was, uh, was related to that, uh, that insight that he had, right?
0: When he witnessed the the vast destruction of human lives, when he invaded and conquered the the country that was called Kalinga at that time, then that caused the kind of turn inner conversion of the heart mm-hmm. within him. And then he turned to the full adoption of the Buddha Dharma.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think the oldest, you know, physical objects with Buddhist inscriptions come from, that's not to say they're the earliest uh, texts, so to speak, but the oldest physical objects that have Buddhist sayings in them are from his, his era.
0: Yeah. Right? The, the inscriptions of King Ashoka. Yeah. You know,
1: so, um, I mean, one reason I ask about the militarism is I've, um, I'd have i like to see myself more political activism on this front. And I would say, in general, mm. among progressives, it's easier to get people interested in environmental activism yeah. or social justice activism, both of which are worthy causes, yeah. than anti-militaristic activism. I, I would think Bo- the Buddhists would... Mm be a natural community to draw on uh, for that kind mm-hmm. of activism. But, but And maybe you can tell me there's more of it than I realize, but I haven't seen a lot.
0: I haven't seen a lot too. And what seems to me to be the case is that this is in the United, people growing up in the United States, these wars in Afghanistan, I don't know what's going on in Iraq now, probably the U.S. still has forces there. Yeah. and other covert operations going on in several African countries. Um, the U.S. support, even though there's been relu- some reluctance about this report, for the Saudi Arabian attacks on the Houthi rebels in yeah uh, in Yemen, which are really in danger. It's already cost thousands and thousands of people their lives. Um, it's just been going on for people who've been gr- who have grown up within the twenty-first century. It's just been like the quiet background of our lives, and it doesn't create splashes in the headlines anymore. So, one almost just takes it for granted, as though it's something like the you know the wind blowing in the air and the sun, the clouds covering the sun. It's just part of the sort of invisible background of our lives.
1: Yeah, and we don't even know about all of it because, I mean, the drone strikes done by the Pentagon are matters of public record. They have to report those, but the ones done by the CIA can remain secret forever. They don't even let the taxpayers know where they're paying to have people killed.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, the drone attacks on really innocent people in Pakistan and Afghanistan, which just obliterate people at weddings on yeah at social events in the marketplace just on the narrowest suspicion
1: I mean often not intentionally, but on the other hand, you know in other words, it's technically collateral damage on the other hand, you know that if you have a sustained program of these strikes with the rules yeah. of engagement you have,
0: yeah. mistakes
1: yeah. will be made a certain percentage of the time and yeah so um anyway, so maybe yeah. someday. What's that?
0: Yeah, compared to, say, the climate movement and the movement for something like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, compared to that, the anti-war movement, anti-militarist movement, not only amongst Buddhists, but in the general population, is Mm -hmm. very, very muted. Of course, there are some people who are speaking out, but... They hardly receive any kind of publicity.
1: Okay, but should momentum ever develop, we can count we can count you in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'll, I may get back to you on that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I may call you to march in the streets of, of New York. By yeah. the way, you are in New York, right, at this uh, monastery?
0: Yeah, you you came to speak here, so it's in upstate New York. Yeah,
1: through your good offices, I had the honor of giving a talk there, and I saw yeah. the apparently the largest Buddha statue in. North America, is that right? That's a big Buddha.
0: Probably in the Western Hemisphere.
1: It's a big Buddha.
0: Yeah, it's a very big one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: oh, there is supposed to be a big one near Princeton, New Jersey. Also, there is. Are you in Princeton?
1: Not at the moment, but I live yeah. there.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a Sri Lankan temple. It's called the New Jersey Buddhist Vihara, in Princeton or out just huh. near Princeton. It's supposed to have a very big outdoor Buddha. I
1: have to check that out. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's. Uh, so again, right speech, right action, right right livelihood are yeah. you know parts of the Eightfold Path that are that are very ethically weighted. Right speech has always seemed to me, as strictly interpreted, a very demanding thing. I, I mean, I think it would it would it would render. 20 to 30% of my utterances, is, you know, off the table. Yeah. What, 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 can you tell us what right speech entails in your mind? Okay,
0: there are four components of right speech. So from the negative point of view, it's abstaining from lying, false speech, abstaining from divisive speech, and that is, means spreading tells when there's a group of people living in harmony, and one wants to win the favor of some members of that group towards oneself. One spreads tales in order to create divisions between them. To These create. are
1: false false tales. They could perhaps
0: be even hmm. true tales, hmm. but the motivation, the intention is to create division. So one speaks what's not necessary. So even though what one says might be true, hmm. it's not necessarily to speak the truth about these,
1: so divisive speech per se, yeah, is is bad.
0: Yeah, it might be considered called also slanderous speech.
1: speech. Although that that typically connotes untruth, I think.
0: But maybe uh, in the Buddhist text, it doesn't really speak about whether that speech is true okay. or false. Just the, what the important, what determines it as divisive speech is the intention is to create division between those living in harmony.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, the third component of right speech is abstaining from harsh speech, speech which deliberately hurts the feelings of others, um, and which is speak, spoken with an angry, um, hostile, aggressive state of mind. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth is Sampa Palapa, which I render that as idle chatter. But it seems, I think that's the category that you would say would encompass about 20% of our ordinary speech.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I wasn't even counting that when I was talking about the speech of mine that would be prohibited. (laughs) That brings me over the 50% threshold. If we throw in idle chatter, I think,
0: I think I would just
1: have to tape my mouth shut.
0: But I would maybe explain this as gossip. Because, okay, we speak with others about the weather, about what's going on with our government. That's Maybe all a, okay. a, a lot of our speech is devoted to that. People who like sports will discuss sports, um, what's taking place with a baseball game, football game. I wouldn't think that that kind of ordinary day-to-day speech should be comprised under wrong speech.
1: Okay, good. Well, that's a load off my mind. I'm still, I'm still, I still need to keep my mouth shut a lot more than I do. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's right. Speech.
0: Yeah, and then the, the positive com- uh, counterparts of that is instead of speaking falsehood, to speak the truth, and that means to speak the truth when it's the right occasion to speak the truth.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: interestingly, when the Buddha is elaborating on right speech, she says that one is going to speak what one knows to be fact, but one has to speak it at the right time. And Mm. so if, say, one wants to reproach a friend of yours because of some kind of wrong behavior, you don't go to him when he's in the midst of a group of, of his friends and then start criticizing him in front of his friends in a way that's going to humiliate him. But you wait until you can get him alone and speak to him privately. About. and all
1: of the, and and these kinds of specific applications with example kind of these are found in the early texts
0: yeah 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 okay i think you'll find them in that little book of buddha's right. teaching us there's a chapter right. on right speech
1: so um, it's a pretty comprehensive ethical system yeah. you know i think certainly well i uh, i guess a lot of religions um I was trying to think uh, what compares in Christianity, but anyway, it's pretty it's pretty comprehensive. Um, the um, so so then uh, we talked a little about right livelihood, but we focused on the militarism question, the armaments. Are there other dimensions of right livelihood that are important? Well,
0: what I would say is that the question of right livelihood becomes very complex and difficult to resolve today because of the. Um, interweaving of so many different types of of ways of earning a living, sort of the interrelationships between them and the way various Mm. industries have exploded and become very big with many different departments. And so people can face quite ambiguous or ambivalent situations regarding their livelihood. For example, if I am working in a chemical company, let's say, that is preparing chemicals that are used, let us say, have a harmful impact on the environment. And I'm just working, say, as a secretary Mm -hmm. in that company, not involved in producing these these chemicals, these poisonous chemicals. I might be faced with the dilemma, should I continue working for this company or not? Even though I'm not producing the poisonous chemicals, I'm just doing like secretarial-level work mm-hmm. or research work in another department.
1: Or and I, don't, I
0: don't have a simple answer to that question. Yeah. I think people have to consult with their own conscience and then make their decisions on that basis.
1: But this this comes up now in the form of uh, Pentagon contracts with these Silicon Valley companies. So you might be at Microsoft just working on the on the issue of virtual reality or augmented reality and and mm-hmm. so on and then it turns out that uh once these products are developed Microsoft is selling them to the Pentagon which they are or Amazon mm-hmm. is selling is bidding for a big cloud computing contract with the Pentagon. Google actually gave one uh, gave a contract up after worker protest, but it was another case where you could have been working on AI at Google without any idea that ultimately would help in the killing of people in other no. countries. No. So no. it is it is complicated. Now, uh, are there whole other parts of right livelihood that have nothing to do with the non-harm principle? or Or is that mainly what right livelihood is about?
0: Well, I say not only... Yeah, actually there are Aspects of right livelihood or wrong livelihood that are not directly concerned with harming other living beings. And this would be earning one's living by means that involve deception, fraudulence, Mm. um, cheating others. Um, Yeah, so I think there are places where the Buddha speaks about abstaining from earning one's living through deception, fraud. Like what are these called? Where you measure goods, for example, by weight, and mm-hmm. then you have the false weighting mm-hmm. so that you are charging higher prices mm-hmm. in order to cheat people. Okay. Yes, so he mentions those as examples of wrong livelihood.
1: Okay. Now what about um so this so there's right speech, right livelihood we talked about, then right action, the third of the 3 what what's what's left over for right action that's a pretty broad sounding term yeah
0: but it's it's given specifically as the ethical principles laid down in the first three precepts to abstain from killing to abstain from stealing to abstain from sexual misconduct
1: okay so there there's a certain amount of overlap among those um among those those three now are there um is there anything fundamental we've missed in terms of talking about the the foundation of Buddhist ethics, the textual foundation, the intellectual foundation, um, or anything major in terms of the uh, kind of thematically in terms of the emphasis, uh, the, the the upshot of Buddhist ethics?
0: Yeah, first I would say that there is another list of items that goes along with the five precepts and the Noble Eightfold Path, which recurs in the early texts again and again. Um, This is called, we have the negative form, the 10 courses of unwholesome karma, and then the counterpart, the 10 courses of wholesome karma. So the 10 courses of unwholesome karma are killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, then the four types of wrong speech, lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, idle chatter. But then we have added to this three mental factors. So one is covetousness. The word, the Pali word is abija, which indicates strong craving. So this is the craving as it takes the form of desiring to obtain the possessions of others. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then the second one is ill will, which takes the form of explicitly desiring others to meet with harm and with misery, with suffering. And then the third is wrong view, and that is the view which denies the validity of moral distinctions and which rejects the the principle of karma and its results. Yeah, so we have that code of ten types of unwholesome karma, and then it has its counterpart as the ten courses of wholesome karma.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned uh covetousness, um, and you use the word craving as another term. And and that that's that's another area where there's a kind of connection between um ethical conduct and just uh, the accurate apprehension of reality, right? Because yeah. it is all, it is thought that in, 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 in Buddhism that one of the fundamental impediments to seeing the world clearly is craving is always wanting something. Yeah. What, always wanting for things to be different than they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, and you know, that leads, um, I mean, I think I should pause and (laughs) emphasize that that's really fundamental, right? Like that is in the, I mean, first of all, the Buddha says that craving is the, in the famous, you know, his first post-enlightenment sermon at Deer Park. He says, this is the source of human suffering. If you had to just name one thing, it is craving. Yeah. And the key is to make it stop. But, But it isn't just that it leads to your own suffering. It leads you to make other people suffer. Oh, yeah. And it leads you to not see the world clearly, not just in the sense of having an accurate ethical view of the world, but really failing to see through to the ultimate nature of things, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What I would say is that, you know, in Buddhism, we speak about like the three kinds of training. And these, even though sometimes we restrict the use of the word ethics or morality to the first stage of training, the training in sila or good conduct, but actually there's a consistency in that all three stages of training sort of have an ethical root. Okay, so the training in samadhi or the adhicitta, the development of the higher mind, is the effort to overcome the, tentatively to overcome the mental defilements which are sometimes spoken of, again, as craving, ill will, um, drowsy, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness, doubt. Sometimes there's a set of 16 defilements, including anger, hostility, jealousy, resentment, hypocrisy, deceitfulness, conceit, arrogance, vanity, and so forth.
1: It's, it's a little like the seven deadly sins in, in the West, right? I, yeah, mean, I mean, broadly.
0: Yeah, 16 deadly sins. Yeah, but the deadly. same idea. Yeah. Okay, so the task of the meditative development is to overcome those mental defilements. And those mental defilements, you could see, have, even as mental states have a moral component or an ethical component, and those are the states that will break out and manifest an unwholesome conduct and then the training in wisdom is as you say it's the training to see things as they really are but when one gains this insight into the nature of things as they are that insight will debilitate the mental defilements and when the insight reaches its culmination it eradicates the mental defilements mm-hmm. so that they cannot arise again mm-hmm. and so the ultimate state of liberation it's not only a state of wise realization of the nature of things but it's a state of permanent purity of mind Mm -hmm. A purity of mind which is so powerful that the person who has obtained that state can never again engage in unwholesome bodily or verbal conduct
1: Mm -hmm. and You know, I'd say, as you kind of hinted, I mean, even those of us who have not attained liberation, which is many of us, you know, if, you know, I've done meditation retreats, not super long ones, but enough to get a taste of what it's like when you really do relax, at least that constant sense of craving. Yeah. And it really is transformative. I mean, unfortunately, the transformation doesn't necessarily last, but the, the, um, but it is amazing how it can reshape the, just the nature of conscious existence.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's, it's worth, um, it's Mm -hmm. worth experimenting with. So, uh, I, I want to, um, we should probably draw this to a close. I have one more kind of fundamental question, but before I get to that, is there anything else you want to say about, uh, Buddhist ethics?
0: Okay, I would say that there's an interesting sutta, a discourse that the Buddha gives to his son, Rahula, who is just at this time, he's just still a young boy. And in this, this sutta, it comes at the end of the sutta. This is in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutta number 61. He explains to Rahula that before one engages in any type of action, bodily or verbal or mental action, one should reflect, will this action of mind lead to my own affliction, to the affliction of others or the affliction of both? Mm -hmm. If one sees on reflection that it will lead to to the affliction of either oneself, others, or both, then one should understand that this is an unwholesome action and one should not engage in that action. Whereas, if one sees that the action will not lead to the affliction of anyone, but will be beneficial to oneself, others, or both, then one can understand that's a wholesome action, and one can engage in that action.
1: Okay. Um, so that's a big question to ask. I'll yeah. um, the, the so as for the question I wanted to ask you. We mentioned that, um, according to the Buddha, the source of a lot of our suffering and suffering we inflict on others is craving, even in the kind of limited sense, for always wanting things to be a little different, a little better. Couldn't I be a little happier if I had more of this? Yeah. Or, or or wouldn't I feel a little better if this one irritation weren't here? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is... Um, you could characterize that as learning to be happy with the way things are i mean that's kind of what it is but when you when you examine that in the context of activism of uh yeah. political activism the question yeah. becomes well if if you know if, if the buddhist ideal is to be happy with the way things are yeah. why should there be activism and I guess, I guess there's two versions of this question. I mean, one is, I, I think you're going to tell me that, well, for one thing, you can find in the Buddhist texts ethical hmm. exhorta, uh, exhortations based on ethics to yeah. actually go out and make the world better. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
1: There is the separate, well, first of all, before I get to the re- that rest, I assume that's true, right?
0: Yeah, though, I think maybe I should say that when you explain craving as the Let's see. You explain craving as the desire for things to be better than the way they are or different from the way they are, Mm -hmm. and then say that if we're really committed to eliminating craving, it means we should accept everything exactly the way it is without desiring it to be different from the way it is. In my opinion, that's not a correct understanding of craving. Craving is really taking... uh, understood as the desire to obtain, possess, and enjoy things that are not presently one's own. So it's a blind and selfish desire for, usually it's explained as desire for enjoyment through the senses or the craving for a different kind of existence, particularly within the framework of the teaching of rebirth. The craving to be reborn in the heavenly world or in better circumstances in the human realm, um, and I think what's really, in my opinion, what's left out of the Buddha's explanation of craving, but I would add this as a very important mode of craving is the craving for power and domination over others. Mm-hmm. It seems that that's a, a a gap within the teachings that's come. To, Have come down. Okay, in any case, so I don't think that craving implies that one inevitably accepts things exactly the way they are, including, let us say, oppressive, unjust, harmful, and destructive modes of social, economic, and political organization. I would say that there's a righteous kind of desire, the desire to establish a political, social and economic order that is under the reign of under the dominant dominance of Dharma, understood as this principle of rightness, virtue, and goodness. And so when there's, say, a political system or economic system, which is inclining towards a dharma, unrighteousness, lack of justice. Then we have even a moral obligation to pursue transformations in the social, political, economic system that will bring them into accord with dharma, the principle of rightness and justice. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I'm, uh, I'm on board with that. L- yeah. Let me ask you uh, a slightly different version of the question, which is as a practical matter, have you seen the peril I'm describing as a real thing? In other words, have you seen people who use Buddhist teaching and meditation to learn how to cope with the world better than, than they had been coping with it? And in the course of going down that path, um, cease to try to change it or or, or just become ill-inclined to try to intervene in the world to make it better because they've found a way to make their peace with it?
0: (laughs) It seems that the people that I come across generally don't take that attitude, but I've heard of people who take that kind of attitude, who think that the aim of Buddha's practice is to develop or they interpret the equanimity which is posited as one of the aims of Buddha's practice, Mm -hmm. take equanimity to entail that one accepts everything exactly the way it is, and that one doesn't make efforts to pursue a more just and more righteous social, political, economic order, Mm -hmm. because that would involve, in some way, departing from that stance of perfect equanimity. I can see that there is that real danger, and I've heard of people who adopt that approach. So generally the people that I encounter uh, don't take that attitude.
1: That's good. Sounds like you're hanging out with a good crowd. <laughs> the um, I, I want to just add a, uh, a little afterward on the subject of craving. There's is one thing I've noted that you know when you do by going on a retreat or something, manage to at least your craving at least abates, and you just feel less in the way of an urge for the next thrill mm-hmm. or the next kind of. Betterment. Um, there is an irony, which is that in my experience, and I think this is pretty common, uh, uh, attentiveness to an appreciation of beauty yeah. tends to grow. And, and so it's yeah. not as if uh, you're you're checking out of all sensory pleasure. It's yeah. more like the sensory pleasure that you enjoy. Uh, becomes of an arguably more wholesome kind and a more, uh, almost more durable kind.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: And that's a great thing. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you so much um, for taking the time. Uh, are you, wh- what are you doing when you're not, when I'm not taking your time? Are you Are you on to uh, translating more texts or what? Recent,
0: re- recently, I haven't done... Uh a new translation project, but what I just completed fairly recently was the preparation of a... tech. It's pretty much like a textbook on learning to read the Pali as used in the suttas, in the discourses. So this is based on the class that I've been giving here at Zhuangyan Monastery over about a four-year period, where each week we take... We've been taking short suttas from the Sangyuta Nikaya and then what I do is to explain them word by word, phrase by phrase, and then give them more natural translation and grammatical explanations. So what I did was to collect this material and then put it together in the form of virtually a textbook.
1: Okay. And that's out?
0: No, it was just submitted. I just submitted it recently to Wisdom Publications, and now they're engaged in the editorial work on it. It'll be out in about a year. A little more than a year, I hope.
1: Okay, good. And wisdom is also the publisher of this, the Buddhist teachings on social and communal harmony. Yeah. Uh, edited and introduced by you. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think wisdom is also the publisher of those vast yeah. volumes I alluded to earlier of your translations yeah. of the Pali Canon. Isn't that right?
0: That is right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And um, okay. Any any place that people can find you online? You don't tweet, do you?
0: Generally not, no. (laughs) I tried one time going on Twitter for, and I just felt overwhelmed.
1: Well, that's because a lot of people weren't adhering to the ideal of right tweet.
0: (laughs) Maybe that should be the ninth, ninth, or maybe the fifth factor of right speech. Right tweet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll work on that.
0: I wonder if I could do a little advertisement for myself.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: in a way, this connects with the topic of Buddhist ethics, that back in 2008, together with some of my friends and students, we felt that Buddhas had to be more proactive in addressing some of the suffering and misery in the world. And so we formed an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, which we assigned to it the mission of addressing the problem of chronic hunger and malnutrition in poor communities around the world. So now we've been active for about 11 years, and we currently have about 40 projects in countries ranging from uh, from Mongolia, Vietnam, Cambodia, through India, Sri Lanka, several African countries, Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, to Haiti, Peru, Nicaragua, and several projects in the United States. Um, And I would like to encourage people, because we depend very largely on donations, so I like to encourage people to go online to look into the work of Buddhist Global Relief. And we also hold, each year, we hold a Walk to Feed the Hungry, which usually in the United States takes place in about 10 locations. And we'll be having the New York Walk to Feed the Hungry on October 26th in Riverside Park. Mm. So if people, this is 2019, so if people see this before the walk takes place, I would encourage them to come and join the walk.
1: Okay, that's great. So if people Google Buddhist Global Relief, they'll find a way to donate to it?
0: Yeah, definitely, yeah. They'll be directed to the website and can learn about the work.
1: Okay, very commendable. The mm-hmm. I, I want to do one more advertisement for you. Um, you did these, le- if people want a good, you know, now that podcasts are all the rage and people are walking around listening to things, you did a series of audio lectures um, in the, maybe the, I don't know, 80s or 90s or something. It was on 1981, Buddhism.
0: yeah. yeah. It's
1: like an introductory course in Buddhism. They're really yeah. good. Yeah. And people, I think if they just Google your name and lectures on Buddhism, they'll probably find them.
0: Yeah. Or maybe they should search for 10 lectures on Buddhism.
1: Yeah. 10 lectures.
0: Yeah. Now, you, originally, I labeled that the Buddha's teaching as it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I don't
0: know whether those who are... But I know the lectures are readily available at various places on on the Internet. I don't know if that title is used in every case but you could search search for 10 lectures on Buddhism.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, they're great. Uh it, yeah. it's like it's like a, yeah. it's definitely like a, it's like Buddhism 101, very authoritative yeah. and clear. Yeah, yeah. Um okay, well thank you so much for taking the time. Okay,
0: so thank you for featuring me here. Yeah.
1: All right, we will see you around. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.